For many, the past month or so has been a time for gifts. And who doesn't like getting gifts? As a kid, I still remember jumping out of bed Christmas mornings to see what was under the tree. The best was in 1977, the year Star Wars first came out. More than anything, I wanted my parents to get me Luke Skywalker's X-Wing fighter, the stuff of dreams for a nine-year-old boy who was a little too into science fiction. My mom, who likely had no idea what an X-Wing fighter was at the time, went to store after store, in mall after mall, to find that gift. And on that Christmas morning, she had the happiest kid in the world. Well, at least until she tried to make me put that X-Wing down so we could go to my grandmother's for Christmas dinner. But many years later, when she told me the story of how she braved lines and almost bribed store clerks to get that toy that was sold out almost everywhere, she didn't say it with any regret. She said it with joy. This is something I didn't understand for a long time. I mean, is there any place worse than a mall at Christmas time? Just to get some stupid plastic toy? But as I get older, I'm realizing something my nine-year-old Star Wars-obsessed self would never have imagined. I'm now enjoying the gift-giving more than the gift-getting. And according to researcher Mike Norton, that makes a lot of sense. For most people, buying something for yourself might feel good for a minute or an hour, something like that. But spending on other people tends to make you happier in the moment, and also it tends to last a little bit longer. On this episode, we'll look at the research behind giving and the unexpected joy it brings all of us. And we'll talk to Indiana University professor Sharik Siddiqui about how religions, and specifically Islam, found ways to make the practice of giving enjoyable, even when the giving can seem as complex as paying your taxes. It's a difficult process because you have to calculate and you have to make sure that the causes that you are giving to align with the theological concepts. So there is that hard work. But that effort in itself is joyful. Whether it's tossing a few dollars in a basket, participating in charity drives, or donating your time at food kitchens or shelters, many religions put giving front and center. Sure, in doing these things, you're helping people in need. And that's certainly valuable. But by giving, you're also helping yourself find joy in a relatively unexpected way. And during the holidays, or any time really, who could argue with that? I'm Dave DeSteno, and this is How God Works. Mike Norton has studied the psychology of giving and spending for much of his career. And with his colleague Elizabeth Dunn, he wrote a popular book about it called Happy Money, The Science of Happier Spending. But unlike many well-intentioned people who caution against trying to find happiness in a shopping spree, Mike's advice isn't based on pie-in-the-sky theories. It's backed by his own research. This is among the most fun research to conduct because we basically just give people cash and then send them out in the world and say... Can I be a subject? Exactly. That's what everybody says. Can I join the research somehow? But the only thing we... So imagine we give you $5 or 10 whatever it might be. And then we just tell different people to do different stuff. So it's very, in a way, very simple. We just say, that group randomly assigned to spend on that, 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 that. We can have as many groups as we want. And then just at the end of the day, we just see who's happiest. So we can just call people up or survey them and say, how happy are you right now? And it really just lets us rank all kinds of different things we can do with our money. And in the very first study, we, we literally gave people $5. And some people we said, spend it on yourself. And other people we said, spend it on somebody else. 
end of the day, spending on yourself, it doesn't make you unhappy to spend on yourself. So it's often, it's not like a huge mistake to buy yourself a coffee. It's probably fine, but it doesn't do much for you compared to spending on somebody else. Buying a coffee for somebody else, it has a little bit more emotional resonance than just buying yourself your 34th coffee of the week. When you presented these results, are are people surprised by them? And by that question, I also mean not just the general public who learns about them, but are the people who actually take part in the study surprised that it was as enjoyable as it was? I think often some people react and it sort of affirms something that they felt. So they feel grateful that science has shown that their belief that being nice is good (laughs) is actually scientifically true. Other people have the reaction of, I don't believe this because definitely spending on yourself is better. So the reaction that we get from people is actually kind of a personality test. For Mike, the surprise wasn't so much that giving to other people can make us happy. It was how big an effect it had on that happiness. Most people can think of a time in their life when they did something for someone else and they felt good about it. So it isn't a secret hidden trick to happiness you know, that, that humans had never discovered until we did. I think the surprising part is that it can beat things that we also think make us happy. So we do think that when we spend on ourselves, it's going to do something for us. And even though we spend so much of our money on that, it doesn't really do that much for us. So the surprise for us is the fact that we can shift you away from what you wanted to do with the money to another thing and make you a little bit happier. It's good news in a sense, because it means there's room for us to get a little bit more happiness out of our money. Do you have any advice for how to give or what types of giving makes us happiest? Giving face-to-face and giving to someone you know makes you happier than giving anonymously. So it is, in fact, better to buy somebody a coffee than to give, donate $5 online to a country far away. And of course, that makes a lot of sense because, you know, we like our friends to say thanks and things like that. So giving to a cause that you care about versus something that your coworker comes in and asks you to donate to something and you do it on the spot and you don't even know what the cause is. So thinking through what you really care about. Having said that, though, when we look at the data, it's true that buying you a coffee would make me happier than giving money to a charity in in a country I'll never go to. But compared to spending the same money on yourself, we typically find that even the anonymous, no credit, nobody will ever know, country you'll never go to, is still better than buying yourself another stupid thing. So the big takeaway for me always is sometimes people say, well, you know, it's paralyzing. Where should I give? There's so many people in need. There's so many important issues. And absolutely carefully think it through and, you know, determine what your values are. At the same time, if the decision is me or other, go with other. You could almost like throw it at a dartboard (laughs) and pick any other. And on average, for most people, that's still going to be better than buying yourself another stupid coffee, you know, your hundredth of the day or whatever it might be. (laughs) So the great news here is that all types of giving make you feel good. While I wouldn't have expected that giving to any person or charity at random would bring me more joy than spending a few dollars on a personal pleasure, it's kind of nice to know that our brains are built that way, built to give. But that doesn't mean that spending on ourselves is always selfish or a bad idea, right? So sometimes the question is posed as, um, well, are we like hardwired to be generous or, or are we hardwired to be selfish? 
Like, what are humans hardwired to do one or the other? And of course, the answer is we're hardwired for both. So if you think about even in a small group, it's really good for the small group if we can be a little bit generous toward each other, right? But it's also really good for the small group if someone misbehaves that we punch them. So do you know what I mean? So it's not that it's like either or, we're either like generous creatures or selfish creatures. I think it's that we have these different impulses built into us that serve different functions. Right, exactly. And it's finding the right balance. I think what I find most compelling about this is that if you look at even the the kind of simulations in, in kind of hardcore evolutionary biology, what you see is that for the most part, people who are cooperative, who who give wisely, not foolishly, not just willy-nilly, but take the first opportunity to give and then, you know, are, are generous back and forth with others who are the same, have the best outcomes over time. If you even think of your own life, <laughs> you know, what has uh, made your life better? Was it behaving selfishly and focused on yourself or was it efforts to connect with other people in one way or another? And the research is pretty clear that being alone by yourself all the time is not so good. <laughs> and so when you extrapolate up from the, you know, stylized cooperation in small groups to your own life, it's it's pretty clear. Now, giving is not the only way to form relationships with others, but I think the generous, grateful spirit toward other people, it means that we construct lives, actually, social lives that are going to make us happier in the long run. I always think of Scrooge McDuck as <laughs> <was> like the... <laughs> Works for me. But Scrooge McDuck is, you know, this guy is just lying on his coins in his castle and nobody likes him. And you, it's funny because, of course, we, people do that sometimes. And you know, if you ended up like that, you probably wouldn't say, you know, I really had a great life. So we, we know it. It's just sometimes hard in the moment to think about things beyond ourselves. Most of us like to be thanked for our gifts. A hug, a thank you card or, depending on the size of the gift, maybe even our name on a new building. In all of these, it's obvious we're gaining something. A warm glow, the admiration of the community. But what about people who give with no expectation of recognition? So the, the question of anonymous giving is, I mean, as you know, social scientists, is so fascinating. Why would anyone ever give without <laughs> getting credit for giving? I think that if you think of the motivations for giving, you, if I think of the motivations, like if I bought you, if we went out for lunch and I bought you lunch, what are my motivations? It's, uh, you know, I want to do a nice thing. I'd like you to be happy, but I'd also like to feel good about myself for giving. If everything's all public all the time, then it's a little unclear to me if I'm giving because it's important to me and I just value giving and I'm like a, that kind of person, or if I'm giving so that everyone will clap for me. And you can see how, and, and everyone likes people clapping for them, but you can see how those can come into conflict, where if you, if you really want to be someone who values generosity, for some people there's a purer form of generosity that is stripping away getting any credit from other people is the true spirit of giving. And in fact, many religions have this, exact uh, idea in them, right? Which is that the highest form of giving is the recipient doesn't know and nobody knows that, that you did this. I know you've studied the effects of ritual on things like feelings of control and on, on grief, but I'm wondering, what do you think about ritualizing 
giving? Does that serve a purpose or might it help us to do it in more effective ways? I think religion often binds us to things that are good for us. So, uh, you know, the, the research pretty clearly shows that religiosity is correlated with happiness pretty linearly, actually. So the, the more faith you have, in a sense, the happier you are. Now, why is that? Some of it may be belief in, you know, a higher power is good for us. But some of it is that religiosity commits us to all kinds of behaviors that are good for us, like going somewhere once a week and seeing a lot of people that we have something in common with. <laughs> Turns out that's actually really, really good for us. It can bind us to our extended family in a way that we might not otherwise because we all go to the same place of worship once a week or once a year. So you can see how that those sorts of built-in features of religion, they're in a sense helping us do lots of things that are good for us. And I think giving is another one where we have this fundamental desire to give and to help. And we can do it in many, many ways in our lives, but often religion is another impetus for us to give it could be to give to the institution. It could be to give to people in need. But at least it's a prompt in our lives to do something focused beyond ourselves in a way that when we're just going back and forth from work, it doesn't happen as much. You know, it doesn't prompt us as much as someone saying, this is important, you know, to people of our faith. Right. Or giving you the opportunity. I mean, you know, we're both behavioral scientists and we both know that wanting to do something works a lot better if someone actually gives you the tools or strategies to, <laughs> to do it. And so exactly. I think that's that's one thing that happens with the... Just, just click here is the greatest innovation in human history yeah. for getting people to do anything you want them yeah, to do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Are you the kind of person that wants to live a good life but understands just how big a task that can be? Well then, I want to tell you about another podcast that I really love called No Small Endeavor. No Small Endeavor explores what it means to live a good life. Virtue ethics professor Lee C. Camp interviews musicians like Amy Grant and Ashley Cleveland, actors like Rain Wilson and Martin Sheen, theologians like N.T. Wright, and New York Times bestselling authors like Anna Lemke and Malcolm Gladwell. Lee is an expert interviewer, and I always walk away from these conversations enriched and challenged, both of which help me on the road toward living a good life. Subscribe now to No Small Endeavor, wherever you get your podcasts. You could say that religious giving was the original just-click-here technology. In many Christian churches, baskets are passed around during services for people to make donations. In countries with many Buddhists, people often drop food or money into monks' begging bowls. Donating is quick and relatively easy to do. But in Islam, the ritual of giving requires a little more work, and, well, math. You count up all your assets every year during holy month of Ramadan, and then you count out all your liabilities. And if you have surplus wealth, two and a half percent of- That's Sharik Siddiqui. He teaches philanthropic studies at Indiana University, and he's also the director of the Muslim Philanthropy Initiative there. And what he's describing is zakat, the Muslim practice of charitable giving. But unlike the give-what-you-want donations of many other religions, this charitable giving is considered by some to be a kind of tax. So every Muslim that can afford it, so you have to have a certain level of income, is supposed to give 2.5% of their surplus wealth every year to eight specific causes of charity. 
And these causes include uh, something as broad as visa bilallah, or for the sake of God, or it can be specific to fight slavery, to feed the orphan, to provide uh, travelers who are going through your town support. And these causes over time, as you can imagine, have been redefined and re-understood in a modern era, right? So today, many Muslim American nonprofits claim that they are part of the feasibility clause, so that they should be given uh, funds uh, for, you know, uh, zakat funds through that clause. A lot of people have accountants do their taxes because, let's face it, running those numbers isn't always easy, let alone enjoyable. So how do Muslims calculate zakat? The way you, you work out your surplus wealth, for example, is let's say you own a home. If you own one home, that's not considered to be your wealth. But if you own a second home, the value is included. For example, my wife has jewelry. There's jewelry that she wears every single day, her wedding ring that I gave her, right? That value is not counted towards the cat. But the other jewelry that she has that she doesn't wear regularly, but it's there, is counted towards her wealth. When people engage in zakat, is it a rewarding feeling or is it like paying your taxes? Because when none of us pay our taxes, I mean, I'm all for paying my taxes. You know, I want to pay my debt to the country and help it do well. But it's never fun. It never, it never feels good or rewarding to do it. So what's the psychological experience of engaging in zakat? Zakat is a way in which you calculate how much are your obligations of the wealth of your obligations of your wealth to society, right? Um, what I would argue is anecdotally from personal experience, most people actually give to charity at numbers that far exceed zakat giving, right? So my wife and I sit down and we do these accounting, but ultimately we're giving beyond that um, that level. So zakat really becomes part of your practice of philanthropy in general in in trying to achieve your vision of social good in society, right? And so if you think about research about philanthropy and charity, Sarah Conrath, she's a social psychologist, has done some research. And we actually know that when people give away money, they have better mental health outcomes. So the sense of it is that for most people, I would argue, giving away zakat is something that is, it's a difficult process because you have to calculate and you have to come make sure that the causes that you are giving to align with the theological concepts. So there is that hard work. But that effort in itself is joyful, at least from the conversations I've had. People like the fact that they're holding themselves accountable, that they are creating they have an obligation to the world that God has ordained, and they are taking the steps to do that. And you're connecting to God, but the fruits of that you'll get at some other time. But when you give money to someone, you can immediately see the social good that you're creating, right? You feel this sense of accomplishment, and you feel like you've contributed at least at the base level of what humanity expects from each other. And traditionally, you can give zakat any time of the year, but most Muslims tend to give it during the holy month of Ramadan. During Ramadan, um, Muslims fast from sunup to sundown. Um, and the belief is, the theological belief is that if you give charity during Ramadan, you actually get more sort of blessings from God as a result of it. So it's kind of it's kind of ritualized. It's not just something nice to do or something you should think about doing, but rather more of a commandment in some senses. 
Zakat is considered to be one of the five pillars in Islam, and the others being the belief in God, the oneness of God, uh, praying five times, going to uh, Mecca at least once time for a pilgrimage if you can. Zakat is one of those pillars that is considered to be the highly practiced one. You know, a decade ago, the Zogby organization had done some research where they asked people, which of the pillars do you practice the most? And Zakat was one of the ones that people, after believing in God, was the second most practiced uh, pillar in the tradition. And wow. Okay. Even, even, even beyond prayer. That's right. So, you know, with prayer, you have to do this five times a day, right? It's, it's a lift, whereas Zakat is potentially just writing a check or helping a neighbor or helping a family member or giving to an organization. So arguably, it's, uh, it, uh, you know, it's probably harder to do, right? What's interesting to me is by making it a pillar, by making it something that you have to do regularly, it forces you to experience the joy that can come with it. And then that bleeds over, right, into potentially giving more or to giving more than once a year or to giving to multiple causes. Is that fair? Absolutely. And I'll give you two examples to kind of illustrate that. One positive, one kind of negative, right? So in certain countries, in certain Muslim-majority countries, Pakistan being exa one example, every year the government collects zakat by looking at how much you have in your savings account. So for a long time, when I was growing up as a child in Pakistan, there was this annual activity where people would go to the banks a month before Ramadan and pull out all their money from the banks. And then they would put that money in. So a lot of people would say the public discourse was, um, you know, people don't want to give zakat. And routinely, what my relatives would tell me is it's not that we don't want to give zakat. We just don't trust the government to be able to give it. We want to do zakat ourselves because we want to know the impact of what we're doing, right? So that's one example where it's not a question of the problem isn't the fact that you have to give away. The challenge is that you want to have agency to give that money. Well, and that, that maps on very closely to what we know about the psychology of giving, right? It's the act of me giving to you that feels good, not the act of me putting money in some account that someone else chooses to distribute in some, in some other way. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And, you know, the other small example, this goes back to the times of enslaved America, right? You know, there are things in the South called saraka cakes. And saraka cakes derive that term from sadaka. So these were enslaved women. They would take a small portion of their daily rice rations and put them aside. And on a regular basis, they would come together, make these rice cakes, which eventually became known as saraka cakes. They would get all the kids from these enslaved plantations together, distribute these cakes. The kids would then clap their hands three times and say, Amin, and then they would eat them. Now, arguably, if you took the literal understanding definition of zakat, these enslaved people, these enslaved women are not required to pay zakat, right? They themselves don't have surplus wealth. They themselves at that time were considered property. But there was something in the experience of maintaining religiosity and maintaining that experience of giving that was important to humanize and help those enslaved women to feel connected to their ideas and their vision of social good. And, you know, so, I mean, it's a long ways away of where we are today, but it gives an idea that even in those really stark circumstances, Humanity and Americans and Muslims in particular, and Muslims and Americans have wanted to sort of 
feel a way of which they could contribute to the betterment of the world using philanthropy as a tool. Humans are social species. We're wired to support one another, to share the sacrifice and the bounty. But what happens if you don't have surplus wealth to share? Are you then also cut off from the joys of giving? I think there's a story of the Prophet, the Hadith of the Prophet, where someone came to him and said, how do I go to heaven? And he said, give charity. They said, okay, how do we give charity? He said, give money away. And the question then that people asked him was, well, what if we can't give away money? He said, go help someone make money so that they can give money. So, well, what if we can't do that? So the Prophet said, well, smile. Smiling is sadaqah. Smiling is charity. So, well, what if I can't smile? He said, well, if you're about to say or do something and you realize that that's going to cause harm, don't do that. So inaction. So in essence, in this really sliding theme, if you think about it, well, and, and so how do we measure a smile? How do we measure intentionality? How do we measure inaction? And my argument is, you know, the fact that whether we can or can't measure these things is a problem for social science, right? But imagine if we had six billion people in the world spending every single day thinking of ways in which they can make the world a better place by smiling, by thinking of ways in which their actions or their words can cause harm, and then not doing that, and potentially doing the opposite, arguably that would be just as impactful, if not more impactful, than the billions of dollars that the very rich give away, right? So this is a way in which it's this democratization or this popularization of charity and giving. It's an interesting way in which we can think about faith. The idea here, to make the world a better place by giving what you can, is one central to most religions. The Jewish obligation of tzedakah is similar. It's a form of social justice where people give what they can, money, food, other types of help, to try to improve everyone's life. It recognizes that the giver and the receiver will both benefit from charitable acts. But I wondered how that plays out psychologically for those on the receiving end. Yes, getting aid surely helps pay the bills or fill hungry bellies, but is there any stigma to feeling more needy than other people? So in Islam, Zakat is the right of those people that are the beneficiaries of Zakat. So it's not like I'm doing a favor. When I give a when I give an orphan some money or if I give someone who's hungry money, I'm not doing them a favor. It is their right to have that money. And so when you receive that money, I don't think it impacts your gratitude. You're still grateful because your life is better because of it. But I think you don't feel like you are less than because this is God's right to you. Is there any thought in either the theology or in people's minds that it actually fights inequality also? Because when you have a sliding scale like that, what it, what it tends to do, at least in my mind, is, is help a little bit to equalize things. Absolutely. I think there's 
two points. One is, I think, the theology of giving um, within Islam is about the intention, right? At the center of your act is the intention for what you're trying to achieve and what you're giving for. Within Islamic mythology of zakat is this idea that if everybody gives zakat and if we give it effectively, there will be a time where we won't have inequality. So when my parents talk about zakat to me, or when I talk to my children about zakat, the idea is that, look, if we do this, we can make the world better. We can heal it, right? And so that's why it's so important that we put, all, we're not lazy about it. We're not just sitting around writing a check to a big, an email that comes through. We're actually going a step further. We're trying to learn about that organization. We're putting time in our efforts with that organization. We're not, we're going beyond the money. We're actually volunteering. We're putting our voice out. We're you know, sharing them on Facebook, we're tweeting them out. So there are all these other things that do this because there is a belief that an equitable system works when there is a system where everybody has a part to play. The other piece to this is that at the very, zakat is considered to be a baseline. And one principal idea of zakat as a baseline is that everybody has an obligation. Right, So this broader story about smiling and so on, that if you have wealth, you have an obligation to be part of the world's social problems. And you have to figure out a mechanism through which you do this intentionally. Like many religious practices, zakat reminds us that we can all benefit from giving. And as the Hadith of the Prophet makes clear, that giving doesn't have to be just monetary. The time, effort, and even simple kindnesses like smiles that we give to others make the world a better place. And when we give with intention to causes we care about, even if it's difficult and the recipients are miles away, science shows it improves not only their lives, but ours too. The other piece of wisdom here is that if we give frequently, at weekly services or as part of our daily routines, it becomes a habit. Research shows that people who are more engaged with the faith also tend to be more generous. And as I've pointed out many times, they also tend to be happier. Mike Norton's work provides one window into why. But the joys of giving are open to everyone. Yes, religious practices help it along, but they're not required. Anyone can make it a habit with some dedication. So as we enter the new year, giving more regularly might be a resolution to consider. Maybe donating monthly to a cause you care about, or visiting weekly with seniors at an old age home. It won't only make you a better person, it'll make you a happier one too. As the Buddha said long ago, before we had the science to back it up, generosity brings happiness at every stage of its expression. We experience joy in forming the intention to be generous, we experience joy in the actual act of giving something, and we experience joy in remembering the fact that we have given. Next time on How God Works. They will have their body pierced with between one and 600 needles. Many people will have uh, hooks put in their skin, and some will have these large skewers that are pierced through their cheeks. So we're really talking about a full day of self-imposed torture. Painful rituals and the surprising benefits they can bring to our social and emotional well-being. We seek suffering because it's part and parcel of what we see as a meaningful life. 
How God Works is hosted and written by me, Dave DeSteno. Our senior producer is Josie Holtzman of Future Projects. Associate producer is Sophie Eisenberg. Our executive producer is Genevieve Sponsler. Music and post-production mix and master by Merritt Jacob. The executive producer of PRX Productions is Jocelyn Gonzalez. This podcast was also made possible with support from the John Templeton Foundation. If you want to learn more, you can head to my website, www.davedesteno.com. <laughs>